0: Is City AM Unregulated? I'm Emma Hazlitt. On this week's show, the man who is making millennials obsessed with their finances.
1: Literally before the receipt comes out of the till, your banking app is up to date, telling you how much you've spent and how much you've got left.
0: Tom Blomfield, co-founder of Monzo.
1: We are doing this because genuinely we, we hate the experience we've got from our banks and we think we have an opportunity to create something that not only delights people but makes their lives in some, some way better.
0: Welcome to Unregulated, City AM's professional development podcast. I am a very croaky Emma Hasbut. On this show we hear entrepreneurial stories, how to be better at your job and how to take the next steps in your career. If you haven't heard of this week's guest, or at least seen one of his cool fluorescent bank cards, you are clearly not a millennial. This man has taken the finance sector by storm with his banking startup.
1: The banks over the last 10 or 15 years have have really damaged trust in bankers and banking.
0: Yes, it's Tom Blomfield, the co-founder of Monzo, who joined us in the studio this week to tell us how he hooked the next generation and how those outages have affected his company. As always... Thanks to the teams at Huckle Tree and White City Place for making this possible. Tom, welcome to the podcast.
1: I'm delighted to be here.
0: Um, I want to kick off by just you explaining to all the non-millennials <laughs> listening, what is Monzo? <laughs>
1: um, so Monzo is a new challenger bank that lives on your smartphone. So it's a current account, comes with a hot coral debit card. Uh, it's a Hot
0: coral, of- fluoro pink.
1: <laughs> Bright orange, yeah. <laughs> the brand name but it's a it's a bank account for people who live their lives on their smartphones basically
0: okay and like one of the most famous things about monzo is this incredible waiting list where are <laughs> we standing right now
1: so we had a little delay last week um we had a, a screw up with one of our card manufacturers so the the waiting list pushed out to about 55,000 people, I think. But oh we're God. aiming to burn through that this week. So it should okay. be down to about zero by the end of the week.
0: Oh, wow. So, th- so there's nothing I can do to, like, get to the front. Or like
1: that. <laughs> you can invite me on your podcast, okay. and that, that usually helps.
0: So <laughs> I don't have a Monza car, but Catch does, and she's a big fan. I have brought one. some
1: spares. You can, Did we'll, you? We'll set you up with one after this. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm so excited.
0: So, I mean, why has it captured the imagination of millennials so much?
1: Um, so, first of all, I think it... I kind of push back when people say it's just for millennials. Okay. Um, So half our... I mean, I was born in 1985, which I guess makes me a millennial. It does. Um, (laughs) um, And it's like our user base skews to the younger generation, I guess. But we get... I mean, half our users are above 30, 25% are above 40. I got an email from an 86-year-old customer last month. Wow. So there is a full range. But yes, it does skew towards younger people as they happen to be, the people who live their lives on their phones. But... Um, so with the, <laughs> that brief caveat, why does it appeal to younger people so much? I think one is just that everything happens in real time. You know, your, your old banking app, you have to wait two or three days for it to update, and it's not particularly useful. And compare it with apps like CityMapper or WhatsApp or Uber or Amazon Prime. They're all about immediacy, really, doing things right now. And so with Monzo... You open your app and you can see how much money you have. You spend with your card and it updates immediately. Literally before the receipt comes out of the till, your banking app is up to date telling you how much you've spent and how much you've got left. So you can budget it into eating out or transportation or entertainment. And in real time, it will tell you how your how you're doing over the month. So if you're out for a, a, a boozy weekend, it will tell you hey actually you're overspending a little bit, maybe you want to slow down. With the <laughs> normal experience
0: over drinking. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: The normal experience is you have the, this weekend and you you check your bank statement on Monday morning with a sort of a grimace. Mm-hmm. You know most people find it just very difficult to stay within the tram lines without that kind of real-time feedback. So I guess that's it. It's the real-time notifications and the budgeting that's built in.
0: I feel like for millennials, a lot of stuff is about being in control and it kind of lets you take control.
1: Yeah, and I think in, money is a very emotional subject um, and people react in all sorts of different ways. But one of the biggest things I, I hear our customers say is before they had Monzo, their money caused them sort of stress and anxiety if it's a five weekend month it's going to be a lot harder than a four weekend month it's just it's that stress of managing to stay on track and most of our customers are well-educated relatively affluent people it's not like they're they're you know really struggling all, all students but it's it just hassle and admin and that causes anxiety and people just find that very stressful
0: so one of the the aspects that a lot of people that I know have cited as something they love is the prepaid model. So you you've got a card, you prepay it, and then you basically use it until it's run out. Yep. Um but I've heard that you guys are planning on cancelling that once you can offer a current account.
1: Um yes and no. So yes the pre it will change from a prepaid card to a debit card with a full current account, but it will stop at zero. I mean it's I I think banks have trained customers to think about financial products too much. You know, it's a debit card or a credit card or a fixed-term loan. It's the same app. It's the same card. Well, technically, it's a physically different card, but it will work in exactly the same way. So when you hit zero, it will stop. It will then say, hey, as a regulated bank, we can now offer you an overdraft if you'd like, but you have to opt in. And that was always one of the things that, that... annoyed me about my old bank, that I'd go below zero and not realise it, and two weeks later I'd get a letter in the post with all my charges. And we really didn't want that to happen. There's another bank who actually, I think they charge 10 quid a month to turn your account off at zero. So <laughs> <laughs> for the privilege of not having an overdraft, they charge you £10 a month, which just seems outrageous. So... Yes, the prepaid is going away, but the current account can be used exactly like a charge card. You can put money on it, spend it down, and it will stop at zero. No one will push you to have an overdraft.
0: I mean, I'm quite interested in the fact that you launched before you had a current account. Anyway, a why launch before that, I guess, but b what's what's the hold- <laughs> <laughs> Uh
1: So she's, the first one is The first one is an easier question to answer. Um, so I. I previously started a startup that went out to Silicon Valley and and did um, a Y Combinator. It's an accelerator out there, which has a sort of set of mantras. Um, And one of those is launch before you're ready or sort of launch a preview before it's fully polished and, and get feedback from your customers because it'll teach you what they really want. So rather than sitting in a room and strategizing for two or three years, the best way to make a great product that people love is to launch really, really early and iterate. And that's exactly what we've done here. It's not been done so often in banking, and we found the prepaid card is a really convenient way of getting going very fast, because we could do it in partnership with another bank before we got our full banking licence. And so that is the answer to why it takes so bloody long to get the current account out. It's a two or three year process, um, and we're coming to the end of that now. So getting a banking licence takes about two years and getting all the technology up and running and and well tested is something that we didn't take lightly. So I think we're now on about 20,000 current accounts, and we'll be um, we'll be transitioning everyone across by Christmas time, so that's about half a million customers. Okay. So big migration coming up. Oh, my
0: God. <laughs> Everybody get ready. Yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned my combinator there, and what I really like about your story is that you're not kind of Mark Zuckerberg. You didn't just launch your first startup, and then <laughs> everything was great, and then you started doing, like, weird hackathons where everyone gets drunk. Um, So, you, I mean, talk me through your career a bit. You started a startup while you were at Oxford.
1: Yeah. Even before that, actually, I built websites when I was sort of 13 and 14, just as a hobby. You know, I had...
0: So these- did I, and it's because no boys liked <laughs>
1: Probably very similar. Um, no boys or girls liked okay. Um So I built websites, and then I, I, um, I ended up building websites for estate agents when I was about 15 years old. So WilsonHeal.co.uk was my first cool. professional creation, still online, although with a different design now. Uh. Um, And then, yeah, at Oxford, I started a company called um, Buy or Sell Online, Bozo, which was a student marketplace back around the same time Facebook was launching in the UK. uh, So obviously they were wildly more successful than we were. Um, You know, we were eventually in about 30 or 40 different universities. And my two co-founders took that um, business to Silicon Valley. I dropped out, sadly, the wrong way. I dropped out of my startup to do my finals. Say it at
0: uni. That's like, no one has that story. No,
1: I know. Uh, so I stayed and did my finals and actually stuck around to do postgraduate law stuff at Oxford, which was a lot of fun. Um, and then I was a management consultant for two or three years, which was it's the career for people who don't know what they want to do with their lives. <laughs> I think there's a few of those. <laughs> um, and it was a lot of fun. I got, I mean, I did all sorts of crazy stuff like, um, uh, frozen pizzas, I did airline interiors, I did baby seat carriers. Uh, the the best or worst project, depending on how you look at it, was so I had to go and be a um, one of those, like... Uh, what do they called, the shoppers, like mystery shoppers. Oh, uh, mystery shopper. for, for like low to mid-end pub restaurants. Oh my God. So I had to go and eat... Um,
0: like Wetherspoons?
1: Uh, vibe. Like
0: slightly above that, like okay. Brewer's Fair okay, okay. and
1: Beef Eater and like that kind of range, Harvester. Oh, have um, you been to
0: Harvester before? That kind of vibe?
1: I've been to so many. <laughs> I had to eat prawn cocktail, rump steak and apple pie seven times a day for six weeks. Wow. <laughs> and you're, you're like the first person in the pub at 11am, <laughs> somewhere in the middle of, if like out in the suburbs of Coventry or something asking for these three courses all at 11 a.m. and can you please bring them all at the same time? I'm really hungry. I used to like very quickly have one bite of each and then run out. To, you know, cause fitting in seven meals a day is takes That's some doing.
0: Yeah, I bet it does. Anyway. You're uh, very smelt <laughs> from man <on> who <laughs> ate seven times a day.
1: That set me up for a career in banking, obviously. Um, <laughs> so that was um, my consulting career. Um, and then I, I got together with two guys who, who'd been at Oxford with me and we started a company called GoCardless back in 2011. Um, we actually started out as Group Pay, which was—I mean—it shows, I guess, how sort of closeted we were. That the biggest problem we had was collecting payments from our friends for like football teams, you know, like the rowing club or the football club or the, yeah. the whatever the scout group. So we we launched Group Pay, which was this tool to to collect money from groups. And so many people have tried to do this, and it's just a terrible business. Okay, really, really terrible business. Um, but we built this technology which sort of ena- enabled automatic direct debit processing. Not super glamorous, but it turns out to be very useful yeah. to a bunch of businesses. So, I mean, our, our early customers all seemed to be coffee roasters who'd have to dispatch different bags of coffee to all the cafes around the country who, you know, who ordered different amounts each week, and this, it got into, like, invoicing hell. So our software oh. basically said, just let you choose an amount, send the invoice, and you'd, it would direct
0: debit their bank account automatically. Um, so that was uh, yeah, there was a lot of fun. It's still going now. I
1: mean, it's it's a sort of medium-sized company now. It, it okay. employs a hundred odd people. Um, Hiroki, my co-founder, is a the CEO there now. Yeah, cool. It's a great business.
0: And then you did something called Grupo, which is a group dating website. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry yeah. to bring up your past. <laughs> <laughs> You've done your research. I have.
1: Um, yeah, I left GoCardless after about three years, um, and I just wanted to try. I mean, direct debit for small business was. Um, was a great way to get started in the sort of entrepreneurial world, but it wasn't my life's passion. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair to say. <laughs>
0: um,
1: and I'd, while I was at Oxford, I'd done these things called crew dates, which are sort of awful in retrospect. It's like six or seven male rowers might get together with six or seven female netball players or something, and you'd go out. Sounds like a match like, made in heaven. You'd go out for like a curry or something and and sort of misbehave basically. Mm-hmm. Um, They were a lot of fun. And you sort of got to hang out with your friends and meet a group of new people. And Grouper was basically that. It was a, they called it a social club. And we never really could decide whether it was a dating site or a social club. But it was three guys and three girls, or three guys if you prefer, um, um, or three girls and three girls. It's sort of, you could choose your your matching. Um, But beyond that, you didn't have to do any work. So you'd say, I've got two buddies in town on Friday nights in... Washington or New York or somewhere. And I want to go out. And Mm -hmm. they would do all of the work in the background and find a a set of three other people who sort of they thought would match well with you. And they'd book a cocktail bar under a fake name.
0: Okay. Uh, So you'd
1: just sort of turn up and ask for like, ask for Tracy or something. And they'd show you to this booth in the corner and you'd meet these three people. And the beauty of the model was that everyone paid $20 to go on one of these dates. And you got your first cocktail for free. And in New York, a cocktail costs about $15 anyway. So actually it's like we kind of, you know, makes sense. But the bars would give the cocktails to Grouper for free. Oh. So we'd make $120 per date, which was amazing. Um, and it grew really really fast. It featured a bunch of TV shows and I joined after about a year and a half as head of growth and we stopped growing. <laughs> <laughs> so I think in 11 months we grew maybe one month out of 11 and then the business fell off a cliff.
0: Oh no.
1: It was yeah, it was a real shame. Like the, the ultimate problem was it it got incredibly popular but people only went on one. Okay. So they all tried it out, and they all said they had a great time. We said, great, book another one. And they were like, ah, I'll see, you know, I'll, I'll think about it.
0: Maybe they've met their match. Maybe,
1: maybe we set up, like, the entire population of New York City. I mean, <laughs> genuinely, we probably had half a million single people wow. from New York on our database, which is unbelievable. But, yeah, it, it grew very, very fast and then imploded just as quickly, which is a real shame.
0: But, you've, I mean, you then went to work for Starling, which you left fairly rapidly as well, right? Um, do you feel like experiences like that have set you up to run a kind of very serious business.
1: I, mean, I wouldn't call grouper necessarily a very serious no, business. No, but I mean, kind of,
0: <laughs> I don't want to use the F word, but the, the failure side, the kind of, you know, going in as head of growth and then not growing. I mean, that kind of frustration
1: yeah. sets yeah, it, you up. I think, for sure, I think all of us are just an accumulation of experiences, good and bad. And grouper taught me a ton of stuff, particularly around human psychology. So Grouper had a waiting list. Uh, it was an exclusive social club. It um, played on the scarcity, and you to, to go on a group, you had to invite two friends. And all, so all of these like behavioural mechanics, pretty yeah. simple me- behavioural mechanics, work really, really well. And part of that you can see in Monzo now. Um has taught me how money moves around. <laughs> uh-huh. You can see that part as well. So for sure, it's. I think we're all just an accumulation of experiences. Um, yep. The one thing that another thing that Grouper taught me is retention is key. If you are fast growing but you do not retain your customers, you will die as soon as you, you reach that tipping point where you're not acquiring more and more and more customers every month, you fall off a cliff. Whereas GoCardless, on the other hand, was a recurring payments platform. It retained its customers so well because you, as mm-hmm. a business you absolutely do not want to change your payments platform. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got customers at GoCardless who signed up six years ago who are now doing more revenue through GoCardless than they were six years ago because their business have grown as well. And so you get these amazing cohorts of customers and i don't think in six years revenue has declined in a single month ever at go cardless wow so retention and recurring revenue are like gold dust
0: so you started monzo which was at the time called mondo
1: indeed indeed
0: can you kind of talk about that a bit or
1: sure um uh, we started in February 2015, um, we were actually called Focus FS originally, oh, just because we had to register boring. a name really, really quickly, yeah. and so we were like, we've got to be focused. Um, <laughs> so the original document do say focus on it, uh, and we, we chose Mondo fairly quickly, it it's was...
0: like a 90s kind of slang term. Like, yeah,
1: like awesome, it's surf yeah. slang for awesome, Mondo! It's like
0: Californian <laughs> surf dude, I love it. it, kind of drew me back to Teenage Mutant <laughs> Hero Turtles.
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, And it's, like, Italian and French for world, so, um, you know, ambitious. But we got a a trademark lawsuit, sadly. Um, And we sort of fretted about it for a while and and ultimately decided to go to our user base and ask for suggestions. The caveat being it had to begin with M because we really liked our logo. Mm -hmm. Um, We got 14,000 suggestions from our user base. And if you work out actually, like... Words that begin with M and have a vowel that probably aren't 14,000 combinations. So effectively, we were like brute force the entire possible range of M words out there. Um, six people suggested Monzo, which we really, really liked, um, which didn't really mean anything. But it was close enough and sort of didn't have the 90s surfer connotations. <laughs> I found out actually just last week that Monzo was a relatively popular first name in the 19th century.
0: Wow, really? Yeah,
1: you go. You can go on the UK um, census stuff and actually dozens of people called Monzo.
0: That's really interesting. Um, Definitely yeah. something to keep in mind for your firstborn. <laughs> Everyone in this room. Yeah,
1: we could have a resurgence of Monzo.
0: So the other thing I wanted to talk about was, like, obviously you've had a few outages. Yep. Um, I feel like you've been quite honest with your customers about what happened there, but can you kind of talk about how you dealt with those?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that's, I hesitate to say values, but I guess it is a value. One of the things that has been important to us as a company from very early on is transparency. As a new business, we have to build trust. And the banks over the last 10 or 15 years have have really damaged trust in bankers and banking. And so the way we wanted to to kind of address that was just transparency. We'll just show everything that's going on. So if you're worried about it, you can kind of, you can go in and see how we've been thinking about it. And you, you can still disagree with the way we think about it, but at least... It convinces you there's no like evil plot or something. And so we had a couple of outages. Uh the worst was I think twelve hours back in February or March, which is quite a long time ago now. We had another outage about three hours back in late July, I believe, or early August. Um and we've just we wrote to all I mean, that really ruins your day when you have to email three hundred thousand customers and apologize. But I wrote you know, I wrote an email explained what had happened that our team were working on fixing it and pretty quickly after that we we managed to f- sort of find a resolution with the third party partner um but i it's frustrating to have outages for sure and it really ruins people's days you know yeah. if you're standing at the checkout with a kid in one arm and a basket of shopping and you cannot pay for your food that's really not a great experience and a bunch of our customers had that experience and it was our fault um so that is something we absolutely try to avoid but when it does happen it, it, i think you can either respond in by trying to sort of downplay it or hide it or proactively warn everyone and say guys if you if you're still at home take another card with you monzo's not going to work for the next few hours so hopefully we've brought more of that technology in house now and, and we will seek to avoid it in future but you can never rule these things out i i would be shocked if we didn't have another outage at some point but we'll work hard to, to minimise it, for sure.
0: And how does it affect how your customers view you? Do you feel like it, it had a kind of notable effect, or do you think you managed to catch it in time and everybody was relatively well-prepared?
1: Um, we had... Uh, the last one, I think, we had 27 complaints out of a customer base of about 350,000 people. Um, we paid a small amount of compensation to people who were really left out of pocket. Um, but... The press the next day we got was phenomenal. I mean, newspapers wrote about how, perhaps even you guys wrote about how um, how we'd handled it and actually built trust and transparency. And we had our biggest, like one of our biggest days of signups the next day. So having outages is not good for business for sure, and it's something we'll seek to avoid. But I think the way we reacted to it hopefully um, brought us at least some goodwill in the short term with our customers. Um, I don't think we can keep doing it certainly it's not the aim
0: <laughs> fair enough um, I've heard you've had a few takeover offers yeah um, oh, you know why turn down a takeover offer um, and were they from like the major banks like can you kind of give us a bit of a clue as to who uh,
1: yeah so we get them fair like uh, one a month at the moment from cool. big banks big tech companies um, and you know it's sort of flattering and you sort of do the maths and think wow I can... that's loads of money <laughs> But ultimately, um, we are doing this because I, genuinely we, we hate the experience we've got from our banks and we think we have an opportunity to create something that actually not only delights people but makes their lives in some small way better. And if we can do that for ourselves and our friends and our families, that's, like, that's a really good step forwards. But if we can take that and then do it for hundreds of millions of people around the world, actually that would be an amazing way to spend the next 15 years. So to have that kind of lasting impact on the world gives you a reason to get out of bed. And selling to a big bank sort of removes that reason. It's those kind of acquisitions never really go well. It's not like we're gonna And they always say it will be great and we'll help you grow and you really realize your potential just much, much faster. It's like, well yes, or you stick us in a basement and we'll sort of rot away and die. Because frankly, don't really want to disrupt your own business models that much. Certainly not as much as we do. So let's see you in 10 years' time.
0: <laughs> Great. Um, and dare I say it, use the word on everyone's lips at the moment, how are we feeling about Brexit? Um,
1: A little bit sad, I think. I was in Paris a week ago um, talking with some sort of French tech entrepreneurs and French politicians. And... It's interesting to see it from their perspective. I hadn't really done that before. Um, and you go to Paris and, first of all, they genuinely cannot believe it's happened. They genuinely they are like, y- you guys must be insane. <laughs> just they, It doesn't even compute for them. They're just like, "Why? how is this even possible? Why would you ever do this? It's not like there's a debate in, in France at all. It's like, you guys are nuts, point one. Point two... It's going to really, really harm your economy. And you can, you can debate that either way. I think they're being too negative about that, probably. Um, but third, they're like, and we're going to profit from it. So all they're doing in France and Germany at the moment is figuring out how to take our financial services industry, take our tech industry, take our creative media, like all of this stuff. They, they think it's like, like it's raining money or something, and they're going to grab a load of industry. And that in particular makes me really, really sad, because I think there's a grain of truth to it that actually, like, if you were an entrepreneur, if you were Tarvit at at TransferWise, you're an entrepreneur from Estonia thinking, where should I set up my business now for the next 10 years? Is London top of your list or is it Paris or Frankfurt or Berlin? So that's a bit irritating, really. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, like, you know, we, our country has been around for for hundreds and hundreds of years and I'm sure we will prosper still through this. Um, And we yeah, I, I think we will prosper. It's, it seems like an act of self-inflicted harm, um, but we'll get through it and, and emerge hopefully stronger.
0: I mean, it's quite interesting to speak to you about this because obviously Monzo was launched around the time that the Brexit vote happened. Um, and all the other banks, you speak to any other banker, and they're worried about passporting, which is the rules that allow them to do business in the EU. Yeah. I, I mean, have you kind of built something to make it easier for you into your business?
1: Uh, to to operate across Europe yeah yeah so we would love we don't yet operate across Europe uh, we still have passporting rights um, and we will start exercising those passporting rights in the next few months probably um, and it seems like with a transition period actually passporting right might remain for the next three or four years at least um, but the backup plan Like every other bank and fintech is to open another office in somewhere like Dublin or Berlin or whatever and apply for a second license and move a bunch of our staff there. So we can survive it, but it involves us taking a bunch of jobs to another country, (laughs) which is just like, (sighs) so from a personal (laughs) perspective, I'll be fine. The business will be fine. It's just like we will pay. We'll we'll have fewer jobs in this country and we'll pay less tax revenue. Like, great. (laughs) <laughs> doesn't seem like a really positive result
0: okay so we're kind of coming to, coming to the end uh, what does the future look like for Monzo like you know how many customers do you want to have in 10 years time like where do you want to be what do you want to be doing
1: so telling the future is really difficult um, <laughs> so I can tell you about our ambitions true, true.
0: Um,
1: the way I think about it really is, a, is sort of the further out the broader the range of outcomes is um, and at the bottom end of the range of outcomes. You have a bank like Metro, which is, I think they just hit a million customers, just got to profitability. So one, two, three million customers in the UK is sort of the downside outcome here, I think. Um, a nice little bank hasn't really changed much for pe- for millennials, people who live their lives on their phones. It's fine. Maybe it gets gobbled up by a big bank in five or six years. I think at the other end of the spectrum, there is a I think there's a possibility that people think about their money in a dramatically different way. So rather than banking with Barclays or HSBC and buying all of those products from one, one company for your entire life, people start to think of banking as a marketplace or a platform. So one app to aggregate, so vis- visualise and control all of your money wherever it sits. That's that's ultimately what we're trying to do. We're not trying to sell yeah. your Monzo mortgage or a Monzo credit card, but give you one app to visualise and control all of your money, so your student loans or your loyalty points or gas electricity whatever it is all in one place and I think if we could do that for a billion people I think that would be world changing
0: a billion people cool we'll see you in 10
1: years
0: (laughs) Um, that sounds great Tom thank you so much for coming on the podcast today thank you well that's it for this week guys you can follow us on at unregulated pod for updates let us know where you are on Monzo's waiting list If you enjoyed this week's show, please take two minutes to like, subscribe, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen. It helps other people to find the podcast. Thanks to Catch, who was producing this week, and Huckle Tree and White City Place, this has been the Unregulated Podcast. We will see you next Tuesday.